This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Beer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Beer from Shasta Ventures, and I am a managing director and co-founder. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. If you're listening right now and you have a question about starting up a new company or you're looking for advice in your own entrepreneurial journey, feel free to give us a call. Our number here is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Woody Skull. He is the former chief business officer at Fitbit. Woody, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. So, Woody, you joined Fitbit in 2010 as its 11th employee, its first full-time business person. And during your tenure, Fitbit grew from $5 million to over $2 billion per year in sales, sold 63 million devices, and expanded from U.S. only to 65 countries around the world. And for listeners who aren't familiar with Fitbit, what what is Fitbit? Uh Let's see. Uh, I I hope there aren't too many listeners who are not familiar with Fitbit. Um, I'm proud to say it. It seems to have become a household name. But Fitbit is the leading um, company in the world of fitness tracking. So health and fitness devices that actually help you know uh, how uh, active you are, um, how well you sleep, how much exercise you get, things like that. So really, um, products that help you lead a healthier, more active life. Yeah, Fitbit actually has a pretty special place in my heart in some ways because I met with James Park very early on, and it was James Park and his co-founder, and they had some ideas, and they were raising like half a million dollars at a 2 or $3 million valuation, and I made the mistake of passing. And then he came back with more progress, and we passed again, and more progress and passed again. So when you hear James talk about a VC or the VC that, that passed at an early stage— I was actually that guy. Well, there are others on that honor roll too, Rob. So don't, 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 <laughs> don't feel, feel like you're that special, bad. exactly. So, what brought you to Fitbit? What what brought you to say yes and to join as the eleventh employee, very early stage? Uh, well, what led me there was um, an introduction by a fellow VC of of, of yours, um, and what struck my curiosity was was frankly that. This is a product that was in a general area of interest of mine, which is health and fitness. Um, it was getting some real traction, and I was really curious about it. I don't, you know, the reason I think you shouldn't feel so bad is that it wasn't exactly clear where this product was going, um, but it was getting traction, and that's what piqued my curiosity, and that's what led to uh, my deciding to join. And when you say traction, what do you mean at that early stage? What did you see that yeah. evidenced that? Well, you know, it was introduced uh, at TechCrunch in t- 2008 and then launched in 2009, but already it was evident in early 2010 when I joined that um, it was starting to get a lot of buzz um, among early adopters, and once I met the company, I started to hear about their month-to-month sales increases, and that was the evidence that this was catching on in some some way. I mean, an unknown way, but there was something there, and that's what piqued my curiosity. And when you joined, what what was it like? Where was the company based? Uh, well, the company is based in San Francisco. Um, what what it was like was um, a classic startup. Um, again, since I was the first business person, I was the first person that ar- arrived and started asking a few of the questions that business people ask. And like, what was the building? Where was the building located? What was it like when you walked in the door? Oh, great. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. When I first met them... They were in a downtown San Francisco office building called the Flood Building. And um, the VC who introduced me actually said, hey, it's an interesting company. Was this John Callahan? John Callahan. John Callahan at True Ventures. Yeah, said, interesting company. Um, James and Eric are great. I don't know where this is going. You've got a great background. I'll introduce you. But, you know, they're just a couple guys in an office building. And so that office building in was... In an office building. The flood. Not in a warehouse. <laughs> no, no. But an office building. No, and it was even more uh, interesting than that. It was the flood building in downtown San Francisco. And the flood building is as old school as it gets. I mean, it's one of those 1940s era 
interiors with the wooden doors and the um, the, the frosted glass. Frosted planes. glass. It looks like something out of an old detective movie. So I kind of walked like down. Like Sam Spade's office. Exactly. Okay. okay. Walked in there. There's so James. You must have been skeptical when you walked in. Well, especially this when is I saw. going to be weird. When I saw Eric Friedman, one of the co-founders, just with his nose, you know, deep in a box of spare parts, trying to do the warranty uh, that he needed to do for the early uh, early purchasers. It, it was oh, the returns, all the Fitbits that had come back. Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. So you know, being a startup, I mean, the CTO was literally. Um, Digging uh, through the returns, digging file. through, <laughs> finding the parts, triaging the par- the products came in. It, it was that whole thing. Okay, so you came in, you saw that, but but you were intrigued by the growth. Well, I was intrigued by the the growth, um, but the interesting thing is, I, I came in and, and the first question I asked was any anybody from the consumer product side would ask, um, was hey, who's buying this product and why? And um, <laughs> I, I got an interesting range of responses um this original fitbit which was that that geeky looking clip miracle product but a you know, there was nothing geekier at that point than a pedometer nothing um and it was just a digital pedometer like you was, would just say literally it would have how many steps you went steps right? distance and calories right and when i asked who's buying it i got a range of responses it's early adopters it's um, data crazed people it's uh super fitness enthusiasts I thought, hmm, that, that's interesting. It doesn't really hold together as a story. Let's find out. So as a connected product, we could look at some of the data. It's one of the first real connected products. And we saw, hey, instead of young male early adopters, the, the median was actually 38, 39. They had a BMI of 28, which is certainly not super fit. It's actually obese. Overweight. It's okay. not obese. Not no, obese. It's, it, it's, okay. it's overweight. And it was more female than male. And so the picture that emerged was, hey, this is more soccer mom than it is um, that classic early adopter of tech products. And when we dove even deeper with some interviews, we found something uh, that— So that's act- where the poll came from. It wasn't necessarily what you were targeting, but those were the people that liked it. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were classic early adopters. But the interesting thing about this product um, and what led to these insights that I think were transformative was that the product was already appealing to people beyond the classic early adopter of a tech product. And the deeper insight that really drove where we got to was when we asked why they were buying it. And what they said was, I mean, there are plenty of people who said, oh, it tracks my step distance and calories, which was, you know, just very factual. But the, the, the deeper insight was a lot of people said, hey, this product is changing my life. And the reason it was changing their life was that it was encouraging, or encouraging them to walk more during their busy life. There were all these things that were conspiring. Almost that simple. It was very simple. Take the stairs, not the elevator. Get out at lunchtime and walk. Get off the bus one stop earlier. And all these things that conspired against them being healthy and fit, which were, hey, I've got a family and kids and school and work, and I just don't have time. Um, Suddenly, with Fitbit, with this little gadget, it was encouraging them to fit fitness into their busy life. And and that led to a a really deep insight, which was that Fitbit – could be much more than the gadget. It could actually let people tr- change their life. And we so, came up with So when you come into a company like this and you help them figure this out, you're the first business hire, they have an idea, then you do something that's a little more data-driven, talking to people. How do you actually put this into practice? So you have this insight. Do you change the messaging that goes on the packages? Do you, do you change the advertising? What do you actually do in the business building based on these insights? Yeah. I think the biggest thing was to share it among our little team and have people realize that we were serving a much bigger purpose. We were actually reaching, we were serving a much deeper need, which was to help people actually live a healthier, more active life. And that was a much bigger concept. So we put it into practice, certainly through, yeah, messaging and what was on the web page and things like that. But it also... um, we put into practice certainly in the kinds of products we d- developed and the kind of features we put in the app because we developed we, – we, we realized that what people were looking for was not another gadget. It was they wanted to lead a healthier, more active life, and they defined that as be more active, get more exercise, get better sleep, eat smarter, uh, manage their weight, 
and be less stressed. And the more we could kind of start to align around, oh, that's what we're here to do. That's what consumers want. That drove products. Were people resistant at first, or was it easy? Was it Within easy? the company? Yeah. Um, consumers were not resistant. Within the company, I wouldn't say resistant, but um, I was the consumer guy who came in. And, you know, until you start to earn your stripes, you're still kind of seen as the business guy, not the core tech guy. Um, How do you that earn your stripes then? What does it mean to earn your stripes when you come into a company at that stage? You're, you're the business guy coming in with the, with the founding technical team that's been scrappy. Well, the good thing about tech people is they do um, respect data. And so being able to show some market research, it showed some things that opened their eyes. Um, you know, they were also, I think, um, more open than I think typical entrepreneurs to, hey, let's find a, a, a bigger need that we're, ser we're serving. And, and certainly what gets people's attention is when you start to put that messaging or marketing and targeting into place and start to see even more traction, even more sales, um, that certainly gets people's attention as well. So that's part of how you earn your stripes. And it's, it's interesting because you're looking to find the common ground when you're working with the people that are in the company. So, oh, okay, here's the data. Let me yeah. show you what the data is. Or if people say, oh, I don't know about that stuff, you say, hey, let's just gather the data. Let's see what the numbers say. Exactly. And then um, try it. See what happens. So you put this in place, and then did this help the company grow faster? Uh, well, it continued to grow at a breakneck speed. I mean, the company... What's a breakneck speed? You were talking about monthly growth you could see. Was yeah, like I mean, I, I don't, you know, this is going back a ways. What I remember more is the annual growth. We grew 3x three times in the first year I was there, then 5x, then about another 3x, then almost another 3x. Those um, are unheard of numbers. Yeah. Those really start to pile up in a hurry. Yeah, and as they get bigger, it's harder and harder to do those multiples. Uh, but no, it was it was a remarkable ride. So it when was, you when you grow at that rate, what are some of the unexpected things that happen along the way? Uh, well, I think there are some. Uh, well, when you're pioneering a new category, I like to say that new categories like that, where you're really breaking new ground, they don't come with an operating manual. There's no, yeah, there are lessons you can bring from other parts of your career and your life, but. But you're breaking new ground. I mean, this product had never existed. So unexpected things. Um, where was it going to sell? I mean, there were some obvious places like Best Buy, but there were some really surprising places like Kohl's, Kohl's department store, where nobody was talking about selling a technology product in Kohl's when I joined. And yet a couple of years in, we realized that that's where this um, Your target customer, the, the soccer mom, was shopping. And they were actually doing a great job. So why job. not serve them by making it available in a channel where they're shopping? Reach them where they shop and where they have that um, point of view, that mentality of, hey, how do I lead a healthy, active life? So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Here in the studio right now with Woody Skull, who is a longtime consumer products veteran and most recently, the chief business officer at Fitbit, he joined them as employee 11 and took them to well over $2 billion in revenue. So how many Fitbits do you own or have you purchased over the years? Uh, well, luckily, I haven't had to purchase too many. Okay. Uh, that's one of the uh, benefits of being there. Uh, well, I own many, but the great but thing is— But you must is, give them away as gifts, too, right? Uh, I have occasionally done that. Okay. Uh, no, the great thing is that the new product that came out, the Ionic um, smartwatch, actually serves a lot of my needs because I used to actually go between three different Fitbits, and every day one, one I'd use for my runs and my, my, um, my uh, bike rides— uh, and then another for my gym workouts, and this one actually combines the three. So it's it's actually the best Fitbit ever. So how many have you tried over time? Hundreds? How many Fitbits? Fitbits, yeah. Well, there haven't been hundreds of models. But, but there's I've, all these different ones. There were, wasn't there like a Michael Kors version or all these well, different that's a, fashion? It, Rob, that's actually a competitor's. But, oh, excuse uh, me. No, okay. No, <laughs> no, we had um, some partnerships with Tory Burch. Tory Burch. That's who I'm thinking of. We did some fashion partnerships. I didn't okay. try the Tory Burch one. It, okay. It didn't really fit my personal style. Okay. Uh, 
No, I, I've tried every one, obviously. And, um, you know, one of the challenges... Do you ever get tired of taking them out of the packaging? You get so many of these electronics things. Yeah. Is that... Yeah, you know, you do try, as a manufacturer, you do try and balance the need to present something really well with uh, this sense that you don't want it to be wasteful. People are conscious of uh, what's recyclable and when something is overpackaged and things like that. So, you know, luckily I don't think Fitbit uh, hit that point, but um, yeah. No, I think, you know, you bring up an interesting point about how many different models there are, and and one of the challenges in a fast-growing company is, on the one hand, as a market is developing, you're seeing lots of different niches and segments, and you want to address them with the right product. On the other hand, uh, when products proliferate, that creates a lot of operational complexity, but also consumer complexity, because a, a real phenomenon is, I call it like the shampoo aisle problem. I want to buy shampoo, and I go into the drugstore. I don't know what I'm going to buy. And I look at the wall of shampoo, and I just step back and say, I don't know where to start. I'm going back to my – I'm going to go research it online. And so, Or I'm going to grab the one I've always grabbed. Yeah. I'm going back to head and shoulders, or <laughs> exactly. I'm going back to whatever. Exactly. Um, and so we had to fight against that, and, and sometimes it got out of balance. But, but keeping a product line simple and keeping it so consumers can easily figure out which one is right for them – was a perennial challenge, and yet I think one of the most important things for a successful consumer product line. Well, I guess to your point, when maybe not what you mentioned exactly, but when you look at Apple, they have a relatively small number of products. Absolutely. They just sell a ton of them. Absolutely. And then the diversity comes from how people configure it and which apps they use, and the lives that they, they live on those devices. Absolutely. But you go into the, the Apple store, and there just aren't that many products. Was there a point where Fitbit was growing so fast that you started to get scared? Like, whoa, holy cow. Uh, I mean, like, viscerally just terrified, like, wow, I don't know where this goes. Or, like, what's the emotional... Yeah. What's the emotional journey that you go through when you go, you said, I think, triple, 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 quintuple, and then triple again? There, there just, were a couple those of those are, Those are stages at, which just never happen in companies. I yeah. mean, there are only a handful for hardware companies in particular, but then Facebook and others. What, what does it feel like? Well, it rarely feels in control. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> That's the honest answer. Okay. Um, you're, you know— Technology was evolving quickly. Our sensors, our ability to derive important, useful information off the sensors. So the products were changing frequently. Um, the combination of a new category and pioneering new technology and rapid uh, product development cycles meant there were lots of times when we introduced products and we were holding our breath. Was it going to arrive on time? Were we going to hit the holiday season? Things like that. So there were a lot of terrifying moments, uh, including the first one when I joined. Uh, the uh, James Narek forgot to tell me in October of 2010 that they actually hadn't shipped a product consu to consumers since July, and they didn't have any uh, inventory for the upcoming holiday season. So that was my introduction to Fitbit. <laughs> <laughs> and for people that aren't familiar with consumer electronics, the the fall holiday season could easily be two-thirds or three-quarters of your revenue for the year. Yeah, not that much for, for Fitbit, but, but certainly 40% of the year. But for a lot of products, it's really back-end loaded, like yeah. right in that time frame. Exactly. And also it has massive importance for your retail partners, too. Absolutely. You know, one of the interesting things that happens, um, and this is, you asked how things changed. Um, you know, when you go from that startup organization to a much larger growth company, a lot of important things change. You're, the, the scale is bigger. The risks are bigger. The, you know, getting things into production means you have lots of people on production lines in Asia. You've got retailers who are counting on you and specifically a buyer who's probably counting on you to make their bonus for the year. Um, and so you have to transition the organization from this super organic, uh, group of mission-charged generalists into um, more specialists, more people who have had more of that specialized experience are less turned on by the specific mission and more out of doing a great job. And 
knowing when to actually and, and the fact is you tend to outgrow people and it's a hard transition for an organization or a founder to decide to make hey you have all these people who started the company with you and you feel loyalty and right? you feel super loyal they were in the trenches they were doing this but the reality is they're not the right person or they're not able to adapt to the new things they need to do versus the old things that worked just a year or two ago that's right there are people who can grow and there are people who grow up to a certain point. And it's hard as an entrepreneur or as a founding team to, to decide that you've outgrown somebody. So how do you coach a founder when they're realizing this for the first time? Because at first it's three musketeers, all for one, one for all. We're going to be together running this company and we'll change things. The laws of gravity won't apply to us. But there's a moment at which every founder realizes exactly what you're talking about. There are people on the team that are able to adapt to the new roles or even want to adapt to the new roles. And then there are others that just aren't appropriate. How do you, how do you coach a founder through that? Yeah, no, it's a great point. Um, and, and I've had to do that. Uh, a lot of it is um, just having an honest discussion and just saying, hey, let's look at what, some of what's happening you're you're asking this person to wear many hats. They, it, it, you know, you point out it's not that normal for somebody over here to be also serving this role. And look, you know, if we could bring in somebody who really knew this specialized function, look at how much further we could be. And I'm not saying it's something that most founders can just toggle the switch and just say, okay, you're right. It's because it really tugs at those emotional strings. But it's, it's just, as you say, coaching them that this, you know, you're getting to this point, this classic inflection point in an organization where you have to start bringing in people who are product managers, who are really good at supply chain, who know how to do this. And maybe there are still roles for those other people. Maybe not. But, but um, if you don't start to make those changes, um, you're going to be holding everybody back. And I think that's usually the the deciding point for them is that it's no longer just about him or her and the founding team. It's about everybody who's joined the company. It's about the investors. And it's also about the um, what their invention, which is their company, can really be. So I'd like to come back to that, but we have Marty on the phone from Syracuse. Marty, thanks for calling in. Uh, thanks. Great show, guys. I really enjoy listening to the uh, feedback that you guys put in. I, too, have a startup. I'm in year three. Um, similar to the, your guest tonight, uh, we actually went from, uh, say, 1x to 10x in year two. And most of my focus, I guess, has been on the production side and... We manufacture a product. It's not a tech product. It is a, it's a golf training aid, of all things. But I guess my question, I'm looking now going into year three and a half and four, I, I wanted to start gathering, I guess, data analytics better, and I'm not suited to do that. What avenues might you, might you steer someone toward? What, would that be something that you'd consider hiring out for, like hiring an agency or bringing someone in on board? I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, yeah, it's Marty, right? Um, yes, Marty. So, Marty, um, I guess my first question is what kind of analytics are you trying to, uh, trying to understand? Are you trying to learn more about your customers and why they're buying the product and, and therefore how you, should, how you could grow the, the company more? Or are there some other analytics you're looking for? Both. Um, we've won some industry awards. We have some of the top golf instructors in the world using our product. One of them is a paid endorsee. The others are not paid endorsees. Um, and I'm trying to think, okay, how do I scale this up? You know, there are 27 million golfers in, a, in the U.S. I'd like to reach, you know, 10% of them. So... Mm -hmm. It would certainly be a different scale than what Fitbit did, but only because we're dealing with smaller numbers. I guess what avenues should I be looking down to, you know, get to the next realm of buyers of my product, I guess? 
that would be my question. Yeah, I think a couple things. First, um, I'm a huge believer in really understanding why people are buying your product at a deep level, not just, you know, like we talked about with Fitbit. What's the, what are you doing that's really changing someone's life or changing their game in this case? I mean, changing their life could be, you know, I'm finally a great golfer. But, and how do they think yeah. about that? And so, um, on the one hand, if you already have a marketing manager, I mean, that, that person uh, could drive this. And there, there are lots of market research firms that could study your current users, assuming you can actually reach them. I don't know if yours is a connected product and you can act, actually reach out to current users. That's usually an excellent source of understanding the insights on why people buy, who they are, uh, what else they do, what they, where they go for sources of information, uh, where they shop, things like that. So, uh, you know, in, in, with Facebook, you know, the, the, the term would be lookalikes, uh, starting with, so who's buying it today and how do we reach more people like them? Um, if there's something where, again, I, I believe strongly that early adopters don't always equate to, don't always equal the mainstream user. But early adopters can be a window into that if you scour it and listen and dig and all that. Um, but often reaching the bigger market um, of not early adopters requires finding something that's bigger and more aspirational and and ways to kind of wake them up to the real need that you're solving. So that's where deeper, more qualitative market research can help the more quantitative side. Yeah, well, Marty, this is a good question, and we're going to have to go to a break in a moment here, but this is something that every company should always be thinking about is how do you instrument the business for data capture in general? There's a lot of web tools you can do that to see where people come in to your website and where a lot of your buyers come from. And then the other thing is as you get out there, it's always good to reach out to the, the users directly and don't overthink it sometimes. Have conversations with five or ten people and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, Great advice. Yeah, I had a really interesting um, experience at Camelback where I was at one point, um, and a great story on how we uncovered the military market, which became the biggest part of Camelback's business. So, so why don't we come back to that right after the break? Marty, thank you so much for calling in. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and I'm in the studio with Woody Skull, the former chief business officer at Fitbit. Stay with us. We'll be back. We'll hear more about Camelback. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. So I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Woody Skull. He was most recently the chief business officer at Fitbit, their first business hire. And we were talking about how he helped them take the company to over $2 billion in revenue. But just before the break, he mentioned Camelback, and he was really a, a key player in creating that brand. Could, could you share the Camelback story? Sure. Um, for those who don't know Camelback, uh, Camelback makes the um, hydration systems that would be uh, used by cyclists and runners and skiers. <clears throat> um, they're backpack hydration systems, like a, a reservoir of water. Hydration with a system. That uh, sounds uh, so fancy. I that's, love that. It's in, so marketing packaged. Rob, it's, it was very it's a bag of water. intentional. Everybody else with was, a tube. Everybody else was selling a bladder with a tube. <laughs> you rather drink out of a bladder or a reservoir in a hydration system? Oh, we all know the answer to okay, it. Okay. But it's amazing. Go. Hydration system. Hydration system. So were they talking about it when you joined as a bladder with a tube? No, they they'd actually... Um, it was already a hydration kudos system? Kudos to them. They'd call it a hydration system. Okay. But, um, it, it was, uh, like Fitbit in the early days, the geekiest of products. Um and what we realized early on was it was serving, like Fitbit, a much deeper need. It was gaining, gaining traction, but the reason people were buying it in droves was it helped them stay hydrated when they're doing active sports. And um, Marty, who we just talked to, was wondering about 
how you discover new opportunities. And Camelback was one of the most remarkable companies I've ever worked with in that regard. You know, we, we were focused on the recreational market and doing very well and developing that business and adding new products and improving the technology. And, and just quickly, what was the biggest sport people used it for? Was it for, for mountain, mountain, mountain biking, biking originally? Yeah. Okay. Um, but a couple of years after we acquired the company, um, I was doing some sales analysis, and this would be another bit of um, advice to Marty, is that sometimes great insights don't come top-down in strategic planning sessions through deductive reasoning. Sometimes it's really looking closely at what's working in your business. And what we saw in the sales analysis was that there was a spike in sales on military bases at the uh, mass merchant called AFI stores, Army Air Force Exchange stores, on the base. Interesting. We were selling these sports products into the sports department of these AFI stores, and yet very quickly in one season they were really taking off. And at first we thought, oh, there must be a lot of cyclists and runners in the military, which there are. But we dug deeper, and what we found was really eye-opening. We found that suddenly enlisted people were using these sports camelbacks to stick in their battle packs as they went on 30-mile road marches because they found it was their secret weapon, if you want to call it that. It was a way better way to stay hydrated than the the old-school canteens. And camelbacks at that time were not only not permitted, they were banned. So these guys were literally sneaking it into their battle packs. They were <laughs> sneaking sips when they could, and they were funny. What is that? <laughs> it's a hydration system, sir. <laughs> it's not a camelback. Uh, and at that point, when we realized that, we realized this product was actually being used for active military service. And it was an incredible eye-opener. So what does I, that I, mean? I'm guessing it didn't mean you're going to make it in camo. Okay, you're not going to make. You did make it. In oh, camo? absolutely, you did. So th- did that's you where do it, went. it with the bit pattern, or did you do it with the smooth camouflage? Originally pattern? the smooth, and okay. then the bitmap camo. No kidding. Absolutely. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. Um, okay. We. Um, so did it get onto the requisition list where you can actually check it off? Yes. Okay. So it. Um, it eventually. So once we realized that there was an application here. The, that was almost a stroke of luck, but we were paying attention. So luck this is a great pre- example. Prepared mind. Where somebody pulls something through. Yeah. Um, and what we did, this, the only smart thing we did was to realize there was an opportunity. We hired people who knew how to design products for the military. We hired some people who figured out how to make it a product that was, was adopted by the grassroots throughout the military. We weren't going to the Pentagon trying to get top-down adoption. Oh, this is just bottoms up. It would have been a 10-year process. People that just want to be better soldiers. Better soldiers. And don't forget, last year they were in high school wearing Nike shoes with brand-name stuff. They wanted real gear. They wanted the good stuff. And so they really – the product worked. They wanted the real thing. And it led eventually to it becoming standard issue for the U.S. Marine Corps, for the Army – for the Air Force, for Navy SEALs, for British um, uh, Special Forces throughout the world. Did this turn out be- becoming a big business for Camelback then? It became the biggest business. Wow. So yeah. it's bigger than the consumer business. I don't know if it is now. But it's the same scale, though. Like, oh, yeah. When you think about, as engineers like to say, order of magnitude, similar size. Totally. Wow. But when you see footage from the Middle East with U.S. soldiers there, almost every time you will see a camelback on their back that's amazing and is the branding still there in the military options yes and that's that was actually how does that work that's one of the real surprises and most people thought okay they're going to want a generic product and this is one of the great lessons for me and i've i've it's one of my it's a real thesis for me going forward when you gain real a real following with consumers, that can really be the point of the spear leading into adoption by an organization like the military. And and what I mean is this. When the Marine Corps is developing the next generation battle pack in Natick, Massachusetts, we went there and we said, hey, I hear, we hear that you're putting a hydration system in there as standard 
um, uh, standard uh, issue. And they said, yes, we are. And by the way, here's the, uh, here are the specs. And it turned out, because we were a bit asleep at the switch, it was our competitor's spec. It literally spec'd <laughs> out <laughs> them. Yeah. And after talking more with them and explaining all of our success and why rank and file were loving our product, they actually switched entirely. And what they realized was the brand name really mattered because people wanted the real thing. They knew if they put a generic hydration system in that pack, when it was issued to Marines and eventually to the Army, people would say, hey, thanks, you got the, the off-brand, the cheap brand. How about a real Camelback? And they realized that that emotional boost was enough to justify the premium. Absolutely. So who is it that coined that phrase, it's the real thing, the first time? Is that Coca-Cola? That's Coca-Cola. It is Coca-Cola. absolutely. Okay. So you've been in brands for a long time. Why do you like brands? Because there are a lot of engineers who just say brands is just a bunch of marketing BS. Now, I don't buy into that. I happen to believe that the emotional connection matters and brands build value. But what attracted you to the idea of branding? And what does branding mean to you? Well, let me tell you what branding doesn't mean. And this is, I think, a great lesson for any consumer-facing technology company. Many founders, who are usually engineers, tend to think of marketing as the skin that somebody else puts on my invention to sell what I want to make so I can keep doing what I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) It's Uh, that stuff that, you know, people do to trick people into buying products. Exactly. But, you know, don't bother me with what they really want and don't have any feedback loop into product and and all that. What attracts me about marketing, and we can talk about branding in a second, is really understanding what consumers want and then meeting their needs. And that's why marketing is so much more than just the skin you put on a product. Real marketing is about understanding needs, both rational and deeper emotional needs. And it's only by doing that, I think, that many of these inventions can really see how they can serve a much bigger audience. So what are good examples of the deeper emotional needs? And I I really, really believe in this, but yeah. what are some examples to bring this to life? Well, let me give you one that I'm working on right now. So I'm work, as we'll talk about, I'm, I'm working on a bunch of really interesting companies, and one of them is called Owlet Baby Care. Owlet, um, like the baby owl. Um, and what that product is, is a connected sock that has a pulse oximeter in it. It has a heart rate monitor and has an accelerometer in it. And so what it does is it tracks your baby's blood oxygen and heart rate. Um, but that's where it gets interesting. If you just stop there, people think, oh, it's just for neurotic parents who want to track everything about their baby. And in fact, quite the opposite. This product lets you know if your baby's okay while your baby's sleeping. It alerts you if there's something wrong. Okay. What could be a deeper human need than to actually know whether your baby's okay? And as a parent, to know that you're doing the most you can do to protect your baby against perhaps the scariest thing as a parent that you could encounter, which is to have a serious health problem and risk with your child. So that's where... And that's deep in the psyche. That's as deep as it gets. I've never seen a consumer... You know, once I got involved... Well, people say that in consumer research, or how do you get to that? That's a great question. Um, Usually you have to dig. It's like having a metal detector... You have to dig, you have to listen. You know, like on Fitbit, people weren't coming right out and saying, this is my path to a healthier life. They were saying, hey, I'm kind of overweight. I don't like being overweight, but I don't want to admit that I'm overweight. Well, like I, we, we didn't hear as forth. much about weight. It was more about, hey, I, you know, gosh, I really want to be more active. I want to do more. I want to be healthier. But uh, and, and this product actually helps me do it. And you know, listening for that, Just digging for that type of signal, listening for the nugget. Um, so it, going back to Owlet, yeah. How did you help them find this, figure this out, and then how did it refine their messaging? Yeah. Well, we're in the process. Or their marketing, or yeah. Oh, so you're in the is, midst of it. Well, we're in the midst of it. Um, but they're, um, you know, they're really orienting the messaging more toward that deeper need, and it's making a difference. They're, you know, when people think about. Um, that product, sometimes they lump it in with baby monitors, either video or audio baby monitors. And those are great products, but they really 
do something very different. They let you know if your baby has woken up. Is your baby uncomfortable? Is your baby crying? Should I go in there? Owlet Smart Sock does something quite different. While you're sleeping and while your baby's sleeping, you're knowing whether your baby's okay and you're also not worrying as much about whether your baby's okay. Of course you need to do all the things you need to to make the baby safe, which is um, put them on their back and a number of those guidelines. But in addition to that, this is that extra level that uh, can really help parents relax and, and babies stay safer. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Woody Skull, who was most recently the chief business officer at Fitbit. So one of the things that I'm really struck by with our conversation today, and this is not giving you a hard time, is you're very careful in the way in which you describe things, and you're very thoughtful in the messaging that you use to describe it. So it's the smart sock that does these things. How do you develop that messaging? So when you go and you work with a startup, how do you develop that? Because I'm guessing that you iterate to it in some manner. Yeah, um, I think the most important thing is to understand what your customer, your consumer really is aspiring to, what they really want to achieve. And, you know, the Fitbit brand is something I'm, I'm really proud of. The Fitbit brand started out as a great brand name, but, but not a great brand because it was such a small company. Um, it's developed as, uh, you know, it's gotten great rankings and awards as one of the most dynamic brands in the world in the country, uh, one of the most inspiring. Um, it, it, um, it, and the way we developed that brand was like nothing I've done before. That brand was not created in a conference room with smart marketing people doing matrices of competitors <laughs> and all that stuff. Right. You kind of learn in business school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't deductive. It was really listening for what are consumers wanted Fitbit to help them be. And then what we did over the course of a number of years was, frankly, to get better at expressing that. So I think of it as, you know, Michelangelo used to say that he wasn't carving something out of marble. He's he kind was of letting it out. It. Yeah. And what we did with Fitbit was we realized our consumers wanted Fitbit to help them. They, they, had, been, they had not been able to achieve this before. They, they needed inspiration. They wanted encouragement. They want, didn't want a company or a brand that took themselves too seriously. They wanted Fitbit to be alongside them, like a buddy, like a co-pilot. Another way to say it is Fitbit needed to be, we realized that Fitbit needed to be accessible and encouraging and friendly and all that, not Nike. But there must Not be Nike. some but there must be some iteration in that. So you do oh, totally. like your first version and then you come back, you're like, Oh, I can't believe we described it quite that way and then you're kind of polishing it. I guess it's sculpting is a way to think it is about sculpting. It. Yeah. I mean you look at the iteration of websites and messages, they certainly evolved from there. Um another good example is the way we you know, you, you mentioned um, naming of products and features. A good example is also at, at Fitbit where an incredible innovation, and, and the, the data science team at Fitbit is really amazing, um, figured out at one point how to use heart rate, resting heart rate, and some other measures to actually estimate your cardiovascular fitness by estimating your VO2 max, okay? Now, VO2 max means something to people who are extreme athletes or people who know a lot about physiology, but it doesn't mean jack <laughs> to the everyday consumer, so we were sitting there saying, oh, we can estimate VO2 max. We can estimate VO2 max. And those of us in marketing said, okay, that's great. How do we make that meaningful to our, our audience? And we said, we're not going to call it VO2 max. We're going to call it cardio fitness. And I think that's the most important thing to think. How do you connect with the consumer? How do you understand who they are and, and bring them products and, and features and language that really addresses those, those needs. Well, one of the things you really hang it on is a brand name, coming back to that. And one of the things that I often think about with a brand name is the, the number one thing I say to a founder or somebody who's thinking about a brand name is your brand name is actually not about you. It's about your customer. 
and how your customer feels about the brand and building that relationship. So just because you like a name as a founder, what really matters is will your customer like the name and is it a name that they can connect with, they can spell? Because like one of these hidden needs nobody wants to say is like, I might love a product, but if it has a name that's hard for me to pronounce or remember, it's embarrassing. And I want to help the company, I want to promote it, but I can't even spell it properly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I would say the flip side of that is that um, once you have at least an easy to pronounce and spell name, a lot of what that brand becomes is 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 what you make of it. It's the empty vessel, the exactly. vessel that you can fill with meaning. Exactly. Exactly. Conversation. Yeah. So maybe talk about that a bit because it's a pretty well-known concept in naming, at least as I understand Yeah, it. I mean, naming is actually one of the toughest things you do in marketing because all the good names are inevitably taken uh, <laughs> or, or whatever. I mean, and you fall in love with the name and you get to the end of a long process. Nope. There are the, still uh, lots of good names out there, though. There are. Um, you have to get creative. And, and some of the best names are actually not literal names. They're actually names that are more um, evocative or um, unusual uh, one of my favorite names actually is is Pandora. Pandora has says nothing about music. It's actually Pandora's Pandora's box. You open it up and all these amazing things come out. <laughs> right? um, yeah, and and yeah. Uh, and it's easy to say and it it translates in different languages. And yet the same uh, myth that it's based on actually um, is international. So. It, it it has some imagery. It's easy to say, and then it's what they created uh, it to be. And and again, the the really exciting thing about what we did with Fitbit was to let that brand emerge. And and as you say, we kept refining it. The the voice we used, the cheeky voice in in the copy and how we talked to consumers, wasn't there at the beginning, but we got better and better. It's like this lens that was a little bit fuzzy and then we kept turning it and tightening it and by the people we added and the skills and the learnings we got and the test and learn because obviously digital marketing lets you do a lot of test and learn these days we figured out more and more you know who Fitbit needed to be yeah well I'll still remember I mean you were talking about the target demographic but I remember when my mom showed me her Fitbit and she asked me if I'd ever heard of the company that's, That's a great what sign. I do. I <laughs> miss oh, our, our, you great. know, one of the marketing people joined and said uh, one of the things that convinced him to join was when his grandmother said, "Oh, I have a Fitbit," uh, and that that shows you know just how broad it got. So you've shared a lot of lessons here. What's the be- best piece of advice you can share with our listeners who are thinking about taking a leap and starting a new company? Well, I, I think um, one of the biggest things is obviously. Um, starting a company requires unbelievable dedication. Um, founders can go one of two ways, I think. Uh, it takes to, – to, to start a company, especially a breakthrough company, something that's never been done before, takes a lot of not listening, to be honest. And I, I say that meaning – Kind of ignoring people. Everybody's going to tell you why you shouldn't do it. Everybody's going to tell you how hard it's going to be. Everyone is going to tell you why it won't work. And and most don't work, but but those that run that gauntlet and get through it um, have done it either with a great idea or sheer persistence or whatever. So you have to be able to block lots of things out to actually persist. But the real inflection point comes then because if you continue to block everybody out, you're really cutting yourself off from expertise and learning from consumers and building your organization. And some founders can't make that transition. That's My a really advice, tough switch to, to make. Absolutely. Not listening to listening. And that's why many don't make that switch. It's that point where... It sounds almost like the opposite of people when they get married. They <laughs> listen a lot, then they get married, <laughs> then they stop listening. I'm not going to touch that one, Rob. Okay. Uh, no, I, I think... Sorry to sidetrack you there. No, I think... Uh, one of the things that I've seen in successful companies is uh, that sense of of being willing to listen, being willing to trust other people, being willing as you transition out of that entrepreneurial phase into that growth stage to be willing to bring on people and listen to them when they bring expertise and judgment and ideas like that. It doesn't mean things become a democracy. It doesn't mean you lose your 
uh, authority as CEO and founder, but it does mean that you recognize you can't do it yourself. How do you coach founders to do that? Do you say literally that? Yes, absolutely. You've had to ignore everybody up to this point to get started. You've had to ignore everybody to get this fitness tracker to market. Well, let me tell you, what I'm doing now is working with some really interesting early stage, early growth stage companies. Um, the reason I have have not had to have that discussion is, frankly, because I screened for it ahead of time. Ah, will they listen? Will they listen? Are they, um, yes, determined, but are they a little bit humble? Are they self-aware? Um, those are really important qualities if you're going to bring on strong advisors, board members, or really talented employees. And if you can't do that, your growth is going to be limited. That's interesting. We've got about a minute and a half here, but... That's a really interesting point because you can get the meeting with the great advisors, but one of the things that you might ask as an entrepreneur is if you're getting good introductions to good people, but then it's not sticking with the advisors you want to work with, you'd kind of have to ask why. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you have to look in the mirror. And you opt out, it sounds like, as an advisor. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm interested in working with companies in this health and fitness to healthcare spectrum that can really transform lives and can become great businesses. And to do that, we've got to have a founder who can see and can make that transition. And I'm guessing, to a certain extent, when you decide which companies you want to work with, and a lot of it depends on who introduces it, and you ask some questions about, hey, what's this founder going to be like as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we've got about 30 seconds. What are you doing now? High level. Um, What's the Woody Skull model? Well, yeah, my model is I work uh, with really interesting companies in the spectrum from health and fitness to healthcare that can change lives by products that can serve you know deep human needs. I'm working with Outlet, as I mentioned. I'm working with a great company called Molecule. Molecule makes a whole next generation of air purification technology. Um, great product on the market now, and a lot further we can take this. Molecule with a K. With a K. And it, get, it traps gases and things that HEPA filters can't even touch. So really innovative technology, again, that can really change people's lives. Um, and then a third company, which is more in stealth mode, which is more in the fitness, connected fitness equipment uh, segment, uh, quite different from Fitbit. But the common theme are companies that have a lot of potential that can really change this, lives. This is really good. We'll have to go to break. We'll have you back to talk about that company, I think, in probably about six to 12 months together with the CEO. But, Woody, thank you so much for joining us Thanks, today. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. So that just about does it for today's show. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. To follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc, or you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Conneybeer. I'd like to thank today's guests. We had Ross... Thinman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Escher Reality and once again, Woody Skull. Thanks also to our producer, Dana Cash, assistant producer, Nicole Grigg, and our engineer, Tatiana Zamis. And thank you for joining us for today's show. I'm Rob Conibier, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.